We're going to jump into our study in Galatians this morning. But I want to start a little bit further back. Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. But for us to get the significance of what we're going to look at in chapter 2 of Galatians today, I want to go back further. In the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, chapters 1 and chapter 2, we find the creation story, how everything came to be. But the thing is, it's written not just to tell us how everything came to be, but why. Right? And so it doesn't just tell us that God made things, it also starts to point towards purpose, intention, plans. And that's especially true with the creation of human beings. And I just want to draw out two sentences of Genesis 1 and 2 to get us set up for where we're going to go. And the first is in the blessing of God making man and woman in his image. He blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay. Now when you turn into Genesis chapter 2, God begins that process with the creation of a man, a single man, all alone in a garden. And he looks at that man, Adam, and he says, it is not good that man should be alone. And a lot of times we read that as, uh, here is, you know, an, uh, an overaged bachelor, he really needs a wife, okay? But what we forget is the aloneness that Eve solves is not just marriage or even companionship. Adam cannot be fruitful and multiply without her. There is no filling the earth without that, and that's the real goal. It is not good that man should be alone because humankind was created for community. In fact, if I had time, I would suggest that when the Bible says that we were created to be God's image bearers, that's impossible alone. It's intended to play out in community because God is love, because God is triune, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's not surprising then that one of the things that happens when everything goes wrong is not a move towards community, but disunity. Not towards togetherness, but division. And so Adam takes Eve, and in chapter 1, or excuse me, in chapter 2, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She was taken out of my side, right? She is of me. She is part of me. And in chapter 3, once sin is there, the woman that you gave me, he distances himself. You see, one of the things that sin does is it divides. And part of that is just because sin breaks fellowship. It, it breaks commitment. It sins against another person, and that sin becomes a wall, a barrier, a division. You all know what I'm talking about. You have relationships that are past tense because sin got in the way. But what I'm talking about this morning is bigger than that. It's not just the fact that sin divides, but division becomes a part of the sin that divides. What I mean is, we don't just divide because this person or that person sinned against me. We divide because this person or that person is different. Right? We begin to separate ourselves. We begin to elevate ourselves. We begin to compete. We begin to judge others. We begin to divide ourselves into classes and categories. Okay. Now... When Jesus comes, he comes to deal with what's wrong, what's gone wrong with humanity, and that includes division. Both the sin that divides us and the division that is sin. 
This is where I want to take you before we read in Galatians, just to get perspective. In the Gospel of John, just hours before Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, less than a day before he hangs on a cross, he prays, and specifically, he prays for you. He prays for you and for me today. And I want you to notice what he prays. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to John, the Gospel of John in the New Testament, chapter 17. For a long time now, Bible commentators have referred to this as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Okay? The high priestly prayer because here he prays for us. He intercedes for us, part of what the priests in the Old Testament did. But I want you to notice this prayer as it begins in verse 20. I do not ask for these only. He'd been praying for his disciples. He says, I don't ask for them only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you're a Christian this morning, if you've come to believe in Jesus Christ through the words proclaimed by the apostles in the New Testament, Jesus is now praying for you 2,000 years ago in the garden. Notice what he prays, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. What does he pray for us? That we would be one. And that that one would eventually become so perfect that it would not just reflect the unity of God, but actually become part of that unity. Not that we will ever be caught up into God in identity, but caught up into relationship with him with no dis division. A love that overflows. Effectively here, God invites us into his eternal loving relationship with himself among the triune. That's the destiny. Now, is that surprising? Jesus prays for us today, and he says, this is my agenda. This is my main goal. Here is what I am after, church, that you would be one. And then did you notice how it's related to the mission? God calls a people um, um, unto, them, unto himself, and they live as a witness with a testimony and a message to proclaim to a watching world and part of that message here is what? Unity. That the oneness would show the world that God sent Jesus. That the oneness would show the world that God loves the world and is making that same invitation to them. What we're going to look at in Galatians chapter 2 this morning, this prayer is at stake. God's plan is at stake. The question for Paul and the 12 apostles in Jerusalem is, does God have one plan of salvation or two? Is there one people of God or two? Is the church united or is the church divided? And I think because we're so used to division, because we're human beings, it's everywhere. I mean, it's 2020, for goodness sakes. We know a little bit about division, don't we? I think we get so used to it 
that we can read this passage and it doesn't seem like high stakes. It's high stakes. Let's read it together. Galatians chapter 2. Now, as you may remember, Paul is explaining to the church in Galatia, which he planted, which is now being tempted by the people he calls the troublemakers, to turn away from the gospel they were taught, to receive the Jewish mark of circumcision, and therefore not add to the gospel but deny it. And so he's walking through his own history and his own relationship with the church in Jerusalem to prep for the argument of the book, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But notice what he says here in chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and sent before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who works through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised works also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Father, I just begin with a confession this morning, and the confession is that your church needs unity. There is division and distinction I ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand the significance of the fact that each of us who has believed in Christ is now in Christ, and all those who are in Christ are one. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would bring about understanding and clarity, that you would bring about conviction and comfort, that you would bring about vision and purpose, and that just, just in this small area of our hearts this morning, just in this short little hour, that your will would be done right here as it is in heaven. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's just nail down the basic facts of what Paul reports to us here. After 14 years of having very little interaction with the church in Jerusalem and with the 12 apostles, probably names you recognize this morning, James, that would be the brother of Jesus, he becomes a major leader in the church in Jerusalem. Cephas and John, that would be Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples. Okay. 
So he goes up. He takes with him Barnabas. Barnabas, who was saved in the Jerusalem church. Barnabas, who's been walking alongside Paul for many of these 14 years serving together, as well as Titus. And Titus is not Jewish. He's Greek. He's from well beyond Jerusalem, way out in the area of Galatia. He's the product of Paul's ministry, and he comes along as well. He gets there, and he has a private meeting with those leaders to talk to them about the gospel he's been carrying. He has a concern, and he labels it here, I'm afraid that I might have run in vain. Now, let's be clear here. It can't possibly be that Paul, after 14 years of ministry, thinks, boy, I wonder if I've got the gospel correct. His concern here is not, maybe I got the message wrong. I should check with those who know better. That wouldn't make any sense in the context, right? We've already talked about the fact Paul is trying to defend his apostleship here. So why would he put it in question? Instead, his concern is that his understanding of the gospel is that all of these churches that are primarily made up of non-Jewish people are part of the same church and saved by the same gospel, and therefore there is one church, not two. He's devoted his life to inviting non-Jewish people to believe in a Jewish Messiah and receive the blessings that God had promised the Jews. Without distinction, without extra requirements or complications. That's why the word circumcision comes up. Can you become a Christian before you become a Jew? Can you become a Christian and not become a Jew? Those are the questions that are brought to bear here. And notice that these apostles meet Titus, proverbially shake his hand, get to know him, and require nothing of him. But in this private meeting, and you can imagine it happening, happening, right? Private meeting right here in our sanctuary. They're talking about these things. And then a few other Jewish Christians from Jerusalem sneak in the back door. And they're just sitting there. They're watching. They're invested in this as well. You may remember we found out last week that Paul plants these churches in Galatia. And then these other people from the Jerusalem area come into Galatia and go, hey, Paul brought you to Jesus, and that's great. Let us tell you about what happens next. Get circumcised. Keep the law of Moses. It's people like that who have slipped into the back. They have a vested interest in this as well, but they want to make sure that the requirements of the law are maintained. Okay, That's their, their goal here. And Paul says, as for them, we didn't yield to them for a minute. And he says, so that the gospel, the truth of it, might be preserved for you. Okay. Um, And then it goes on, and basically, the outcome of this meeting is Peter and Paul and James and Cephas agree that they're on the same team, carrying out the same ministry. There's a division of labor, right? Paul unto the Gentiles. Peter and John, unto the Jews, but with the right hand of fellowship. Okay? This is huge. This is why there isn't the church of Paul and the church of Peter. But what is it that brings about this unity? How does it function? Why does it matter? Those are the things that I want to spend some time looking at this morning. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, Paul goes up in verse 1 with Barnabas and Titus. That's like a living microcosm of the unity that we're talking about. Okay? Barnabas, Titus, Paul, they all get it. They're all working together. They're unified. They're committed. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 2. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? I went up because of a revelation. Okay. Now, maybe this means, and if you read the book of Acts, this is very possible. Maybe this means that Paul is just out doing his thing, and he just has a vision. God just appears in Jesus Christ and says, Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. It wouldn't be the first or the last time that God has spoken, revealed himself to Paul, and called him to do something. There is another option, though. If we understand the timeline of the book of Acts uh, correctly, in Acts chapter 11, a man named Agabus, who has a gift of prophecy, has a revelation, realizes, oh my gosh, there's going to be a massive famine and it's going to hurt the Jerusalem church really bad. Okay. Maybe that's the revelation. So Paul hears about this word and he goes to show up. We have a good reason to believe that because what are the disciples' only request of Paul? Remember the poor. What poor? The poor in Jerusalem. Okay. This baby church that is international. Remember the day of Pentecost? People from all over the globe are gathered for a Jewish holiday. Jesus is preached and they become Christians. How many of them at that point don't go home and go, holy cow, the Messiah has come. We need to be a part of this. And they resettle in Jerusalem, leaving their lives and their livelihood behind. Okay. That's probably where the tension comes from in these things. But I want you to notice why Paul doesn't come. He doesn't say, I went up because I was summoned, right? It's not that Peter and James and John send a message to Paul and say, Paul, you need to report to headquarters, okay? Now, again, that's important to understand Paul's apostleship, but there's a bigger significance, and this is what I want to point out. Sometimes the way that we think about unity is structural, Okay? In other words, we're all under the same head honcho, and therefore we are one. Sometimes the way that we go about unity is structural, and that is externally imposed. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, churches have a built-in structure and design. It has members and deacons and pastors. Okay? Uh, lots of things in our life have structure, and that structure is a part of unity. But to borrow the title of a, a really helpful book from a few years ago, we have to understand the difference between the trellis, the structure, and the vine that grows on it. The unity that we're talking about in the church is not reduced down to organizational, structural, hierarchical. Okay. Instead, Paul gets his marching orders from Jesus. Now, you might naturally go, now, wait a minute, isn't Jesus Lord and therefore there is a structural thing? Sure, but it's deeper than that. It's fuller than that. Okay. A vine doesn't report to the root. It grows from it. The unity is closer, not less, greater. This is Christ's church. He's calling the shots. He is the origin 
author and the finisher, the alpha and omega. Okay. In other words, I would suggest that the real unity we have on display here is because Paul, Peter, James, John, they are in Christ. That's where the unity comes from. Now, here's a place where we go wrong when we think about unity. Here, God provides one way of salvation with a universal intent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Every nation, tribe, tongue, language, ethnicity, all of it. One savior, one plan. And, as we saw, so that he might make them one, unify them. But there is a tendency to feel like for true unity to be possible, we need to have no metric. In other words, the problem is we constantly put people on the outside. And that's true, right? What happens? We define us, and what does that imply? Them. We define who's in, and we create out. We draw a boundary, and that boundary separates. Okay. So there's this, this common approach now, you know, of kind of like a modern version of why can't we all just get along? That says, just, just be unified and stop dividing. But it's interesting, isn't it? That when Paul deals with unity here, he sees actual threats to this unity. Okay. And those threats are from outsiders. This is not an issue of inside or outside. And here's the thing. We as Christians should believe in tolerance, but we need to understand what tolerance means. Tolerance is how we treat those who are outside, not who gets to be inside. Okay? So we should be tolerant of all people, of all faiths, of all beliefs, of all orientations. Of, it doesn't really matter. We should be tolerant of all people. In fact, the Bible goes further. Jesus says we should love even our enemies. That's a whole lot more than tolerance. We don't just tolerate people. But when we're talking about unity, the question of tolerance becomes, can everybody come inside? And the answer for us as Christians is yes, but there's only one door, and you have to come through it. Okay? And so Paul is worried here about boundaries. And so notice what he says in verse 4, he says, Yet because of false brothers brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom of we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. If we gain the unity and lose the truth, we lose the unity. Okay? His concern here, in fact, it's striking, isn't it? He takes these guys sitting in the back of the room, and what does he call them? False brothers not family. He's not saying these are Christians who have a different opinion. He's saying this belief system is incompatible with Christianity. They're still on the outside. Okay. And that shouldn't surprise us because listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. There are other Gospels, which Paul says a verse earlier, are no Gospels at all. Okay. And so when we talk about unity in Christ, 
to some degree, we have to say, which Christ? Our unity stems from who Jesus is, and that, in a sense, although it is something we have to digest and understand, in another sense, it is not debatable. It is not open to filling in our own thing. We can't make Jesus in our own image and then draw a line around the body, but we can say this is who Jesus was according to Scripture. Remember even Jesus' prayer. How would we know Jesus? Those who come to know me through the preaching of your words, disciples. The apostolic Jesus, the New Testament Jesus. Okay. And so there are threats to unity. Now, when we talk about unity here, there is a truth of inside-outside, and there's only one door in, and that's Jesus. This doesn't mean that anyone who knows Jesus, we never have a debate or a disagreement or put a demand on. In fact, notice that phrase again in verse 5, the truth of the gospel. Paul uses it again just a few verses later. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Okay. When he sees that Peter distances himself from non-Jewish people at the lunch table, he says, this doesn't align. This isn't in step with the truth of the gospel. But what does that make the norming norm of our unity? What is it that brings us to bear and call people to account? What is it that describes inside and outside? It's Jesus. Who is Jesus? And how do we respond to Jesus? Right? Not in step with the truth of the gospel. Okay? And so the unity that's envisioned here does have an inside and an outside, as all unity does. Okay? Think of a quilt. What I'm suggesting to you is we need to not just think about the stitching around a square of a quilt and go, that's where one square begins and another ends. We have to recognize this, the, the quilt square, it's all of one piece, right? The unity is greater than just the boundary lines that we draw. It's, it's all one piece. It's all in Christ, okay? But this unity, once it is established should be huge, should be defining. As Jesus prayed, it should be visible, and not just to us, like, wow, we really function as a solid community, but to outsiders. Many of you are new to Seattle. Many of you are new to adulthood, and you arrived here and discovered for the first time what it was to be alone, to be on the outside. And you went, oh, I need community. We forget that. We're independent, modern Americans. We're self-made. We just go out and do it, and we don't need anybody's help. The goal is to do it on our own. But remember, even Robinson Crusoe doesn't survive alone without everything he owes to the community that shaped him. Every skill he has, he owes to community. The very breath in his lungs, the blood that pumps, his genetic coding, all of that stuff is dependent upon a whole lot more than him. Okay. But you've tasted that, you've seen that, you've explored that, you know that, you find that longing in yourself. And we as Christians shouldn't be hesitant to say that this is part of what the gospel offers. A real, full, robust unity. 
Now, we already talked about one of the ways that that comes to be, right? And that's in, that in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. And so that means that there can be reconciliation. Where sin is destroyed, Christ can rebuild. In fact, where sin is killed, Christ has, can resurrect. And so part of the way our ministry as Christians is described in 2 Corinthians is the ministry of reconciliation, reunification, reuniting, reuniting, bringing peace, okay? But it also challenges the divisions we make based on differences. Okay, let me show you what I mean. This is just a little bit later in the book of Galatians in chapter 3. Now listen to what he says in verse 26. He says, for in Christ Jesus, there's that phrase, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, if you're a woman this morning and that rubs you the wrong way because you feel excluded, two things. One, a lot of the times when we find masculine words like sons or brothers in the New Testament, it's actually a generic word and it's just badly transferred, uh, translated. So Adelphoi literally means brothers and sisters, but just out of, out of ease, they put brothers in the text. That's not the case here. This word for sons is the, is the gender-specific word for sons. But I know he's got women in mind because he's going to mention you in just a second. Why does he say sons? As we'll see when we get here, it's because sons get the inheritance. And he wants to make clear that there are no second-class citizens in Christianity. So we're all sons. The highest status Okay. But notice what he says in verse 27. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. Now what are those differences? They're places that because of differences, we make status distinctions and therefore we divide. Okay, so a basketball team is all one, but there's A string and B string. Okay. A nation is all one, but there's the doers and then there's the dependers. Us and them, right in the midst. Okay. Here's the problem. Sometimes people read this verse in particular and they go, all right, so all distinctions and differences are eradicated in Jesus. That's not the best way to understand this. Remember that the last one on the list, male and female, that's a God-made distinction. It's differences that matter because they're by design. Okay. So how do we fit this all together? Listen, gospel unity doesn't eradicate or ignore difference. It transcends it. Okay. Oftentimes, we mistake unity for uniformity. We think the only way we can be one is if we're all the same. This idea has gotten so deep into the mindset of probably our nation and our world, but also into the church, that in the 1990s, they rolled out a principle of church planting that they called the HUP the homogenous unit principle. And it's really simple. People like to hang with people like them. So plant churches for specific microcosms of people. 
One church for the wealthy, one church for the blue collar. One church for the hipster, one church for the cowboy. One church for the black, one church for the white. That was a method that in the 90s was very popular to think about churches. And some of you who grew up in the church probably saw that. The worship was tooled in for a particular audience. Everybody dressed the same. I remember reading about a big hip church one time where a person was visiting, and in the same moment, in the same song, everybody did a 360 turn. Right? Homogenous. But that's not what we see. That's not what God calls us to. In fact, by the time we get to heaven and it's all said and done, and we see all of the church gathered in one place, we see them from every tribe, tongue, nation. You know what those things are? Those are human-made culture. When we all worship Jesus together, we will do it in a thousand tongues. And I know when you think of heaven, you think we're all going to be in white robes. Has it ever occurred to you that the reason those paintings are in white robes is because they were painted by people who wore robes? They just saw themselves there. But the truth is, all of the manifest differences of humanity will be on display What will unify them? That at their center will be the Redeemer and Savior that they worship together. Again, gospel unity doesn't ignore differences. In fact, when we ignore differences, you know what we get? We get injustice. Okay? It doesn't ignore differences, but it does transcend them. Let me show you Ephesians, the next book in your New Testament, chapter 4. Why should the church be unified? Why should it overcome and transcend differences? Why should it be distinctly and manifestly made up of completely different people that is a community of love and care and unity? This is why, chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body. Remember what I said about more than structural unity? Is your body unified just because it has a skeleton? No, it's unified because it's all one body. It's all one organism. Your organs work together towards the same purpose of keeping you alive. Okay? That's how close this is. One body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay? The things we have in common as Christians tremendously outweigh the differences. But they don't remove them. It says here, one Lord. But we will call that Lord by different names in different languages. One faith. But different traditions. One baptism. But different methods. One spirit. But different gifts. In fact, that's where Paul is going, and he's going to say, as he says there in verse 7, but grace was given to each of us. Okay. One, 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 one each. Same, 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 different. One body, many members, different parts. Okay. And again, that's by design. And so this thing that's at stake here is 
Is there going to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church? Are they going to be separate, have nothing in common, segregated? That's what Paul's concern is. That's what his worry is. And he's also worried that in maintaining that distinction, breaking the unity, denies the sufficiency of the gospel. It doesn't just, it doesn't just not get it. It pushes back against it. That's why Paul stands up in the middle of the lunchroom and calls Peter out and says, hey, wait a minute, this is not okay. And that's because of division, distinction of status, the cool kids table where the circumcised sit. That's why James says, don't show partiality. If a wealthy man and a poor man enter into the church, don't treat them differently. We're so good at that, so good at dividing and status and competition and comparison. The list of where we do this is inexhaustible. So I think it's better, instead of just castigating ourselves for all of the places where unity doesn't exist, to talk about what it looks like when it does. And we get a great picture of that here in Galatians chapter 2 as well. So here they have this conversation. The apostles are all in agreement. One God with one mission and one gospel, creating one church made up of all sorts of people. Okay. But notice in verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seem to be pillars, let's just deal with that really quickly because it's fascinating, isn't it? how dismissive Paul is here of Peter and John and Cephas. They seem to be pillars. In fact, notice what he says earlier in verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Doesn't it seem weird? Many people have read this as if Paul was anti the other apostles. That's not the point. The point is, whatever their role, because he would affirm them here as apostles, that doesn't impact their status. See, here's another way we divide. We divide by elevating certain people and not just recognizing their office. Office matters, but we change it and transition it into status as if they're more important. Paul challenges this directly in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, that's not how a body works. So he sees them. They seem to be pillars. They seem to be influential. It doesn't really matter to me. God doesn't show any partiality. But then notice what they do. It says, when they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. One, unity looks like fellowship. The unity of the church is only manifested where it exists despite differences. Okay. When you intentionally and joyfully hang out with people who are different than you. And again, you have been wired, maybe just, just human nature, maybe high school. You have been wired to gravitate around those who are like you, who share your sense of humor, let alone, you know, your economic status or your skin color. But unity looks like fellowship, and gospel unity looks like fellowship where differences abound. 
If people on the outside can look at the church and go, well, sure, they all hang out together. They're all exactly the same. They all vote the same way, right? They all drive the same cars. They all dress the same way. They're all about the same age. If that explains the unity in the church, then it's not fully manifesting the gospel. Think about it. Those of you who call this church home, are there, are there people in this church that you don't know as well as others? Sure. But can you pull back the skin a little bit and ask why? Are there people that you just haven't gotten to know because they're not like you? Fellowship is such a simple but deep thing. The idea here isn't that everybody in the church should be your best friend because that's what unity is. But the idea is that the commonality you have in Christ should be tremendous. Uniting. I know it's trite. But if the gospel is true, you are going to spend eternity with these people. So fellowship is the first one. The second one, so fellowship instead of fragmentation. Let's say that, okay? The second one here, it says that we, right hand of fellowship to Barnabas me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Again, it's not uniformity. The same God who calls us all unto salvation gives us specific callings. The same God who gives us all the Holy Spirit gives us specific gifts. But the important thing here is that it is um, working together, not against each other. Okay? It is... Can anyone remind me of the word that I just used? I, I lost it. Fellowship was the first one. Cooperation. What was it? Uh, well, yeah, but we'll go with cooperation. That's probably the word I want. Fellowship, cooperation, right? They agree to divvy up the task based on their callings and based on their gifts, but they are doing this shoulder to shoulder and not in competition. Okay. Listen, this city is full of churches who love Jesus and represent him and are part of our family. And I believe in the local church. I believe that we can codify our own traditions, that we hold one another accountable in a way that we don't need to or are called to hold people outside this church accountable. But we are not the one true church in Seattle. We are not in competition with other churches. They're not eating away part of our market share. We are co-laborers. Servants of the same Lord, accomplishing the same goal. And that should be manifest. It should be shown. It shouldn't just be a passive, well, they're doing their thing and we're doing ours. It should be cooperative. It should be a division of labor, a commitment to do the same thing together, to play to our strengths. And we don't always see this, but it exists. For those of you who are familiar with the fact that we're currently trying to purchase this building, Grace Presbyterian Church gave us 10 grand just because they love us and because they're here with us. And that wasn't an investment, by the way. That was a gift. They don't want to be repaid. That's gospel unity. And let me tell you, we are not a Presbyterian church. So, fellowship instead of fragmentation cooperation instead of competition, and then the last one, ownership. 
Look at verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. He says, don't forget you are responsible for the poor in other churches. Now this plays out just in the local church level as well. Read the opening chapters of the book of Acts. One of the things that is distinguishing of the church is that they take care of the needs in their midst. They don't always get it right. They're taking care of all of these widows, supporting them financially, and the Greek widows get neglected. And they have an all-church meeting, and they say, this is not in line with the gospel. And they appoint seven Greek men to make sure it happens right. Okay. But it's also true in the broader level. Listen, when you think about the fires in California and the floods on the East Coast right now, there are Christians in Christ, part of your body, whose houses are flooded, whose places of worship are destroyed. Take it broader. There are people all over the world with refugee status, displaced, persecuted, driven out of their countries by their governments. Either that is part of our body, or we don't understand the gospel. When I say ownership, I'm trying to express responsibility. Responsibility for the whole body. Paul says, when one part of your body hurts, the whole body suffers. You know that. You've experienced it, right, with a slipped hammer swing. It should be as true in the church as well. In our church and beyond our church, ownership instead of indifference. Okay. This is... This is how John puts it. He says, if you see your brother or sister lacking food or clothing or shelter, and you say to them, God bless you, go in peace, but you do not give them the things you need, you do not love them. The fellowship, the community, the unity that we're talking about here is comprehensive. And that's what's so head-scratching to the world. Why would you care about them? Why would you hang out with them? Why would you partner with them? Because we're in Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, because the barrier, the walls have been broken down, torn to the ground, because Jesus came proclaiming peace, and not just peace between God and man, between man and all of mankind. I just want to challenge you this morning not just to avoid disunity but as Paul says in Ephesians to pursue unity to intentionally know spend time with listen to eat with those who are different than you and call Jesus Lord to intentionally look for ways to work together Take people with different gifts and invite them into what you're doing and allow them to play their part, not your predisposed part. See people who are in need and feel the need is your own. This is Jesus' prayer. And eventually it will be fulfilled. 
One day we will all stand in heaven completely unified, eyes focused on the same Savior in worship, again, in a thousand tongues and in a thousand forms of dress, in a thousand nationalities. But the truths that are true then are true now. Let's pray. Father, I can't think of a better prayer than the chorus of the song we opened our service with today. Make us one as you are one. I pray that you would protect us from a sense of status or a divisiveness or a factionalism or of unifying around other causes than the gospel. I pray, Lord, that our care for one another would be comprehensive from top to bottom, that it would lead for us to introduce and extend the right hand of fellowship, and it would culminate in us caring about the needs, emotional, spiritual, physical, financial, that we would recognize that God didn't just send Jesus to die for us, but to make a body, to bring about the community that he envisioned, the one that is in his very image. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you have made this possible in Christ, that even in the places where the division are long-standing because they are divisions of sin or even hatred, destruction or fear, survival instincts, whatever it is, Lord, they can be undone, reversed, removed, and the people can be unified. We pray that you would be about this work and that we would be receptive to it. In Jesus' name, amen.